Well, what a joy it is to be with you this evening. I hope that you have had a pleasant day. We're, we're enjoying the weather here and uh, hope that our folks back home are not too envious. When we had the warm, got into the 80s today, I think, down here and uh, checked with our daughter back home and it was in the 40s with rain and chill and so they'll just have to do the best they can with it there till. But uh, we are enjoying that and enjoying, as Kevin said, getting to get off to a good start, I trust, yesterday, and good to see you tonight, and uh, Ian and his family, and uh, the Fields, glad to have them with us, and others that may be visiting, and uh, it's a joy to be here for Linda, my wife, and I, and for our song-leading grandson, Will. Thank you, Will, for helping us out tonight. In Matthew chapter 5, seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into the mountains. And when he, was when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, and he spoke unto them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Even so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the reading of Matthew chapter 5, the first 16 verses, we're looking at uh, what is often called, uh, in the early portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and then what Jesus said about the influence, using the metaphors of salt and light, that those who have those qualities will have. For most of us, I, I trust that, that it's not shocking to hear those words. It's, it's perhaps difficult to put ourselves in the situation, though, of those who heard for the first time, when they had been brought up to think that to be wealthy, this would be a sign of God's favor. And uh, that, that if, if there were problems and not prosperity, that maybe you were doing something that would be wrong. And it, I'm, I'm persuaded that it would have a staggering effect upon those who first heard the words, 
Blessed are the poor. And I know Jesus said poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I'm talking about when the folks first heard it. He's talking about poor people being blessed. And mourning. And being meek. And being hungry and thirsty. And all of this is antithetical to what people would have thought. With human reasoning, you wouldn't think that that's the way to be blessed. You'd think it would be the very opposite. And really, no doubt, the first listeners, it brought some discomfort upon them to hear that because it's not in accord with human reasoning. But you see, Jesus gives us a different perspective. And slowly, as disciples, we begin to form our way of walking and our manner of life and our way of thinking in line with his precepts. This evening, of the text that we just referred to, I'm especially going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 and, and verse 6, referencing those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. The word blessed has to do with someone that is really well off. And to, to think of all the blessedness of this person. He's the one that is, is genuinely blessed. He's almost to be envied. He's, he's really well off. And so here's the one that has a hunger and thirst. It's the blessedness of the one who has a spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness. Almost the first thing that a baby cries for is food. God has made us that way. God has made us with physical appetites, but he's also made us with spiritual appetites. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, he has put eternity into our hearts. And so here the one that is truly blessed is the one who has an insatiable appetite for righteousness, for what is right. He's, he's hungry for it. He's thirsty for it. And instead of occasionally having an appetite for those that um, consider the linguistics here, the point is made that these are present active participles. And so, in other words, it's the one who continues to hunger. It's the one who continues to thirst. It is linear. It is continuous action that is being considered. I thought about this. And it occurs to me that it's very possible for the significance of a text like this to lose its impact upon us. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. I may be speaking for you too, though. To, to be really, really hungry for something. I'm talking right now about food. Now, back home on a regular basis, there's a restaurant we go to locally. We know the people. We've been going there for years. We watch the owner's family grow up and that sort of thing. So... I mean, if, if rarely we're not there, they'll ask people, what's wrong? Where are they? So it's a pretty regular thing. So when, when they come by, it'll, you know, it'll be always what I think is kind of a dumb question, like, are you ready to order? Well, I was ready before I got there. And so I say, yes, we're, I, I'm starving. Well, they know I'm just kidding. They know I'm not really starving, but I'm, I might be hungry. Years ago, I'm, I'm, I referenced yesterday our first trip, first overseas preaching trip. 
And uh, there are a lot of things about that that made a lasting impression upon me. In, the, in, in 1992, uh, Bob Waldron and I worked for a month together in the southern part of Czechoslovakia. And uh, over the course of the month we were there, we used four different translators because it, it would depend, we were, we were having classes at various times, and it would depend on who was available and scheduling, so it just worked out we, during the course of, of time we, we used four different ones. One of them, his name was Marek, and uh, his mother was a Czech, and his father was a Russian. And he had lived in Russia, but at that time he was living in Czechoslovakia. So early on in our work that month, uh, Lonnie Oldag had been the one who made the connection and he had done some translating for him, so yes, he's going to be someone we'll use. So we, we were sitting down, Bob and I, and talking with him about things we wanted to do and that we would expect of him and that sort of thing. And I, I'll never forget, he, uh, we're eating, just a little eatery close by uh, the flat we were staying. And um, he turned to me and he said, uh, really to, to the two of us, but he says, uh, so do you know why I'm living in Czechoslovakia and not in Russia? Well, of course, I said, no, no idea. And I, I remember, he had, he had ordered, I still remember he had ordered some fried cheese for his, for his meal. And I remember him taking his fork and tapping the plate and saying, it's because of this right here. He said, here I get something to eat every day. He said, when I lived in Russia, he said, I would eat something one day and maybe two, three days later have something to eat. But here I have something to eat every day. Well, you know, I've never really thought about that. In, in, my, in our preaching and our living and working with brethren and in located work, uh, it, it's been in Alabama and Georgia and, and Tennessee. And of course, we've traveled in meetings, but as far as where we've lived, it's been those three southern states. But Linda and I have never had a conversation that would be like, well, if we move, like right now we're in Cullman County in Alabama in Hansville, and uh, we, didn't have, we did not have this conversation. We didn't say, if we move to Hansville, Alabama, do you think we'll get something to eat every day? You, you reckon we'll be able to do that? Uh, that never occurred to us. We didn't have a conversation like that. And, and so the, the states and places we've lived, it's uh, what are the opportunities there, you know, and, and if, if there's been an interest in our moving and looks like we could do some good and all the things you consider and, and you pray about that. But food was never one of them. And yet here was, a, here was a person that where he lived was determined by the fact he'd get something to eat. People like that know what it's like to be hungry. And really we have to see that that's the word that Jesus, that Jesus is using here. It's not somebody that, well, he's had breakfast and a few hours have gone by and it's lunchtime. And yeah, he's really hungry. It's, it's like the word that would be used in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus had fasted for 40 days and nights. And the text says, the, the King James I says, I think says afterwards he hungered. One of the translations says he was famished. It, it's like when the famine hit Egypt. And the Septuagint uses the same word as here in the New Testament uh, for it to be hungry. The idea of, of, uh, that, that, that in Egypt, that, uh, that, that, that the, the, the Genesis 41 verse 55 says, when all the land of Egypt was famished. That's when people are hungry. And so that's when Pharaoh says, go to Joseph and whatever he says to you do, 
and people are having to travel to Egypt because there, there was grain. And so the Bible makes reference to that kind of hunger. And if we could see, that's what he's talking about here. Having that kind of appetite for righteousness, being hungry for it. And the same thing when it comes to thirst. This is someone that's not like, well, yes, I think I could use something to drink. This is somebody that is suffering from thirst. He's very thirsty. It's like in, in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 3, the people thirsted for water. They thought, of course, God wasn't going to let this happen, but they thought they were going to die. And, and there'd be times they'd be marching, go, go three days, nothing to drink in the heat. Samson in Judges chapter 15 became thirsty and called to the Lord. And he said, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the Philistines? That's what we've got to get into our minds, to understand the kind of appetite Jesus is referencing for righteousness. Someone that's going to die if he doesn't get something to drink. He's that thirsty. Someone that is famished, he's starving, and he so desperately wants something to eat. In John 7 and verse 37, on the last day of the feast, this would be the Feast of Tabernacles contextually, on the last day, John 7, 37, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But, it's not just blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. But it's, it's for the Lord. It's for righteousness. It is for the, 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 the rivers of living water that here he speaks of. Psalm 42 has been put to music, lyrics in, term, in, our, in our songbook. That, that's one of our, uh, in, in many cases, it has come to be one of our favorite songs. I, I don't know if you all sing it here at Cortez, but over in Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? I still remember the first time I heard that song as the deer. That is in our, in our books, isn't it, right here? I remember the first time I heard that song, our uh, middle child, Micah, was 15 years old. And Huey Hartzell, I'd met him at Jasper, Alabama, and they'd gone to, have, have you all heard about the R.J. Stevens Singing School in Oklahoma? And so uh, Huey Hartzell invited Micah to go, and Micah rode with him and Sister Hartzell all the way to Oklahoma for the, for the class, for the week of classes and came back, and I, I was there to pick Mike up, and I remember that he, he says, hey, Dad, let me show you a new song that I learned. And, and he, he has his book. All, all the participants in the class got a songbook, you know, and it was the R.J. Stevens songbook. And so he, he opens that up, and, and he's, he's showing me how it goes as we're riding in the car. And I remember not only liking the tune of the song and the words of the song, but... I remember how that he was hoarse from having sung all week. That's kind of a special memory. But here, if you can just imagine the ibex 
or, or the gazelle, something in the deer family. Uh, that's, that's maybe in the Negev, in the southern part of Israel, when it could be so dry. And, and just go for miles and there's no water and just be panting and his sides heaving back and forth and just so desperately. And then he finally comes to that cool, clear water, an oasis or a spring in the desert and how he relishes and enjoys that. So that's the metaphor that is used here. To, to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness is to thirst for God, is to have a hunger for God. It's... It's an eager longing to walk with God to please Him. In Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. O God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Do you see that? So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Don't you see the, the metaphors are, are so much like what Jesus is using in that Sermon on the Mount. The soul thirsting, the flesh longing, and just so desirous of being in right relationship with God. So what Jesus is talking about is not somebody that would just like to do a little bit better in life, you know. But what he's, what he's giving is the kingdom constitution. And it's not pick and choose. All of those are like the garment woven of one cloth. We're just looking at one primary aspect that, that is in it for our lesson tonight, one, one in particular, but they all fit together. They're, they're, they're all interdependent one on another. And so here this person who is poor in spirit knows he's spiritually bankrupt. He knows that there's nothing in his hand he brings simply to the cross he clings and he mourns for his sins. And he certainly has a, a meek spirit before God. He's humble before God because uh, of these other traits. But then there's the, the satisfaction of the need and hungering, thirsting for righteousness. But as I say, don't, don't let the fact that we live in a land of plenty cause us to miss the figures Jesus is employing. He's talking about a hunger and thirst that is so great. It's like we can't get along without this. I've got to have something to eat. I've got to have something to quench my thirst. You, you, you can't go on and on without food and on and on without water. You have to have that need met. And here's the person desperate to meet that need. But let's probe a little further. We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now righteousness, I'm sure there are a number of passages that, that we could consider about that. There are many of them. But to, for our purpose tonight, just two things that, that really, I think, summarize what righteousness is about. First of all, it's the relationship with God. It's being right with God. And the, only, the, the whole book of Romans deals with that. Speaking of the gospel, Romans 1.16 verse 17 says, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. So how to be right with God 
And by the time you get to the third chapter, as we saw yesterday, he talks about the propitiation that's in the blood of Jesus Christ. Only because of what Jesus did can God be just, which he must be, and our justifier, which he wants to be. But righteousness has to be on his terms. He has the right to choose. And there's only one way of being right with God, and that's Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14 and verse 6. So righteousness is, is the, 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 this matter of being right with God. Here we are in the situation described in Romans 3.23 when it says all have sinned. That's the chapter where Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one. But the gospel is God's means of making men righteous. And that's done not by ignoring sin. Jesus paid the debt fully. And as we comply with God's will, the wonderful thing is every sin is remitted by the blood of Christ. But see, that's the way of becoming righteous. And it's not any merit of our own. This is the principle that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The only way you could be justified by the law is if you never sinned, if you kept it perfectly. Nobody ever did that except Jesus. And so, and I would also add to, to, the, to that thought, the, the point of, of chapter 10. Paul talks about those that have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he says, being ignorant of God's righteousness, they have thought, they have attempted to establish their own. And so, uh, there's only one means of becoming right with God, and that is, by the grace of God having reached down, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, Titus 2 and verse 11 and 12. And so with God's grace expressed in Jesus Christ and his atoning, his redemptive work, the propitiation in his blood when one renders obedience to the gospel, God can be just in forgiving us. And thus, thus we're in a state of righteousness. And that's something to really hunger for. And you continue in that right relationship with God as we walk in the light, as 1 John 1 and verse 7 says. As we walk in the light, He is, he is faithful and just uh, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we continue to need the cleansing blood of Christ. So righteousness, first of all, is that state of being right with God. Secondly, righteousness refers to the character reflected by those who are saved by grace. That's those passages that talk about doing those things that are righteous and, and are, are the, the very members of our body in, in Romans chapter 6, not being instruments of wickedness, but instruments of righteousness for God's glory. So the fruit that we bear unto righteousness, you see. So, as I say, to, to sum it up, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is, first of all, that right relationship with God so that nothing stands between you and God, to be right with Him, but then growing out of that, the righteous life that reflects, well, like Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 says, to be imitators of God and, uh, and walk as dear children. So, that's the thing that we're hungering for, that right relationship with God, that kind of 
of life that he wants us to live. And that's what God wants. Righteousness that's the result of a transformed life. He doesn't just want to save us. He wants to change us. And so to, to transform us that we are, as 2 Peter 1 and verse 4 says, partakers of the divine nature, becoming as, uh, well, like Luke, Luke 6 and verse 40, the disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who has been fully trained will be like his teacher. That's a wonderful thing to, to have our focus upon the Lord and want to be more and more like him, conformed to the image of God's dear Son, as Romans 8 verse 29 would put it. And so that's the thing. Here one is wanting to be right with God. He is wanting to be characterized by righteousness in his own life. And that has become the most desirable thing to him in the world. He's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the gospel is very narrow. Uh, what can satisfy the needs of the lungs to breathe? You've got to have air. Uh, nothing else will do. And the, the need that we have for righteousness, it can only be found in Christ and in the gospel and nowhere else. What can satisfy hunger? Just food. What can satisfy thirst? Well, Water or liquid water, something nourishing that in that way. The, the, the righteousness can only be found in the righteousness of Christ. But we're still exploring the passage. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then there's a promise for they shall be filled. Not everybody's going to be filled. The they that are filled are the ones that hunger and thirst after righteousness. I was talking with, with Will a little bit yesterday. You know, uh, I, I know you have these things everywhere, and they're not unique to this part of the country, but uh, y'all sure do have a lot of psychics around here. I mean, we've noticed a proliferation uh, of them here. And I was just talking to Will. The, the thing is that... Um, when people don't know the gospel and when they don't have right relationship with the Lord, they're going to believe in something. There's a vacuum there that must be filled. And so if, if somebody uh, doesn't turn to the revelation God has given, he may well turn to somebody else that will take his money and give him advice on what he should do and, and supposedly tell the future and those kind of things. Somebody says, well, I don't believe in God, and you listen to them and they'll talk about, but isn't it amazing how Mother Nature has equipped this species to do that and, and how evolution has done that. And so they deify nature. They deify evolution. And so they still turn to, to something. Or they might deify humanity. Or they might worship Mother Earth. You know, and... and but there's within each of us a deep need for God. An inescapable need for God. Eternity is in our hearts. And we can try to fill it. The book of Ecclesiastes makes a great study. Because Solomon, the wisest man on all the earth, engages in a grand experiment. With all of the uh, wealth that he had, he could experiment in various ways. He said, I had, I had wine. I had 
Uh, of course, he had all his wives, a thousand of them, and uh, he, he has gardens, he has pools, he has building projects, he has musicians, he has entertainment. And by the time you get to ch- uh, chapter 2, he says, so I hated my life. And in that book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about a man acquiring great riches and, and all the things that he might do. But he said he's going to have to die and leave it. And this is vanity. And when he keeps that, that re- reoccurring, uh, the recurring phrase, life under the sun, he keeps looking at, if you're just looking at this life, how vain it is, how transitory, how, how empty it can be. It's only when there's right relationship with God. Of course, that's where he's heading in the whole book as he concludes, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole or the whole duty of man. But the soul cannot be satisfied with material things. The soul cannot be satisfied with with money or if I just had that car, if I just had that house. And so people get the house or they get the car and they still are empty and they wonder why that didn't work. Well, I thought I'd feel different if I had that. What we need is righteousness. And those who long for it will be filled. Those that have a fervent desire for freedom from sin will receive that in Christ and through Christ. And the wonderful thing, really the amazing thing, is how he wants us to have it. Matthew chapter 11 In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I look at this invitation, I think in terms of the background of Jesus. You know, he was not teaching, according to Luke chapter 3, until the age of 30. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, Jesus is referred to as the carpenter, not just the son of a carpenter, but in Mark 6 verse 3 is not this the carpenter. The carpenter in Jesus' day, if you needed a plow for your field, you would go to a carpenter. He would be the one that would make the plow. He'd be the one you'd talk to. If you needed a yoke of oxen, you'd go to the carpenter's shop, and, and he would make the yoke for you. There could be little doubt that Jesus did those kind of things in Joseph's shop as he was growing up. And now Jesus says, of course, he used the plow, no one having put his hand to the plow. That would be Luke 9. And looking back, he's fit for the kingdom of God. Here in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. He says, "My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me suggest to you, Jesus is not saying it's easy to be a Christian when he said my yoke is easy. The, the wording, my yoke is easy, means my yoke fits well. It is designed properly. Now, if you take a, a, a yoke that's properly made and it fits well, and you yoke a couple of good, strong animals to it, they can move a heavy load. They can really do a lot of work if the yoke is right, if the yoke fits well. And we can do a lot of work in the Lord's service because the yoke fits well. That's what he's saying. It's designed with you in mind. It's just right for you. But he wants you to come. And, and he's, he's offering what the world cannot offer. Rest. 
peace for your souls, relationship with God, all these wonderful blessings. That's why we're told in Philippians, the fourth chapter, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. Freedom from sin, that's what we're talking about. They shall be filled. Filled with what? Righteousness. Remember in John 8 and verse 32, Jesus said to some Jews who believed on him, as he is commending them, he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But at that point, they they sort of uh, were resistant. They kind of bristled and asked, well, what do you mean made free from sin? We've never been in bondage to anyone. I've always wondered, how could you say that? (laughs) The Assyrians? You forget about the Babylonians? The Persians, the Greeks, and even at that time the Romans, we've never been in bondage to anyone. Jesus ignored. He didn't go chasing down a rabbit trail. He just got to the point. He said, everyone that commits sin is the bondservant of sin. If the Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. Oh, that's what I want, to be free from sin. If the Son make you free, you will be free indeed. You see, that's, that's righteousness, to know the truth and to be made free from sin. That hunger and thirst that this passage is talking about, I've already indicated, is, is the very verb tenses that are used indicates an ongoing action. And that's appropriate because when you think in terms of physical hunger and thirst, that's not something that's permanently satisfied. In other words, you're hungry. And so you eat, and you think, I, I don't need any more right now, I'm, I'm, I'm full. And, and it, you might be so full sometimes you'll think, I'll never need to eat again. I don't think I'll ever be hungry again. But let a few hours pass, and you're ready for another meal. Is that your experience? And, and Linda and I are somewhat different in this regard. Um, we, we can have, we can, I, I, my office is close enough, I ordinarily come home for lunch, and so we'll, we'll have a bite of lunch. And then I'll say, so what, what are your plans for, for dinner tonight? And she'll say, I can't think about food right now. We've just eaten. I'm not hungry. Well, I thought, well, you know, you don't have to be hungry to be thinking about food. You can plan ahead, you know. And, and, and I'm okay with just planning ahead even if I'm not hungry. But that, that's really the way it works. You, you ladies, I mean, you, you know, sooner finish one meal than you're having to think in terms of the next one. And And so it's ongoing. And the thing is, that's also so illustrative of what the Lord wants us to be spiritually. That you might have at one time, you might have so much that you have absorbed in your own study or listening to a lesson. It's like, I don't think right now I could take in, I'm just, I feel saturated. I don't think I could take another thing in right now. And that may be the case. But meditate on that. Let that have free course. Let that do its work. And then just realize there's so much more for you to learn. What, what is sad is when a person uh, reaches the point, he thinks he pretty well knows the gospel. You know, I don't need to go to gospel meetings because I, I know the gospel. And, uh, and, and he doesn't, I mean, as a new convert, people like that, but, but somebody might reach the point where he thinks that there's such maturity that, that he pretty well knows it. 
That's a sad thing. Uh, some of the men that I admire and women that I admire the most, I'm not just talking about gospel preachers, but that insatiable appetite. They may be in their 90s, in their 80s. They may be in their 90s. Linda and I had, at, at um, Hansville, there was, a, there was a lady that uh, lived to be 104, Sister Bradford, wasn't she, 104? And she wouldn't know, because we wouldn't call ahead of time, when we'd be coming. And there were any number of times we'd go to her room when she was in the nursing home, and uh, she'd be in her room, sitting in her chair or on the side of the bed with her Bible open. And uh, she would call one of her members. They were, they were related. Don't ask me just exactly how. But uh, they were related. And, and if she was working up my question sheet, I would pass out questions with, for the classes. If there's a question she couldn't find the answer to, she'd call this member up. Or she, if she didn't have her question, she'd call her up. Here she is, 104. And just continuing to read and study right up, right up to the end. And um, you know what, fellow gospel preachers such as Kevin um, and and Brother Rice there. What what we know is that uh, there's just so much we don't know that's still there for us to learn. And and uh, it's just we have we have such a treasury here that there's there's such depth that that even when we get that. Uh, the parameters and the general grasp, oh, there's so much we just continue to, to learn. And so much we continue to learn about God and His nature and His mercy and His loving kindness. His steadfast love endures forever. And so even though there might be a point when I've, you know, here you are maybe at the end of a week's gospel meeting, um, and it's like, you know, that, that was a spiritual feast, and, and, and it's not like right then you could take in something else, but let that, let that do its work, and then you grow some more and study some more, and it, it'll be amazing how that you'll start connecting dots. You'll, you'll say, well, that reminds me of this passage, and you'll go somewhere else, and you'll just keep cross-referencing and building in your understanding. And I'm not talking about just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but changing our hearts, impacting us, becoming more like our Lord. Hungering and thirsting for that. So, the more you desire, the more you receive. And just always have the attitude, I just, I can never get enough. And I don't want anything to get in the way. So, um, I'm wondering, I'm wondering how many in the audience tonight know about Diogenes. Anyone know about Diogenes? You know, Alexander the Great uh, he had a real, he conquered the world, but he had a real admiration for Greek philosophy. I mean, when he conquered the world, he was an, an apostle of Greek culture. But uh, his, his tutor, you may know this, but his tutor was Aristotle. And he always had a profound respect for Aristotle. And when he'd come back uh, he, he would br- to Greece, he would bring Aristotle gifts from various places. But anyway, he, so he had a lot of respect for the philosophers. So Diogenes was a great philosopher among the Greeks. And the story is told by Plutarch that uh, Alexander made the quest. He's conquered the world by this point, and he, make, he makes the journey to go see Diogenes. And he's standing there as Diogenes is reclining out, out in the open outdoors, and he says, is there anything that I could do for you? Anything that I could get for you, you just name it, anything that I could do for you. Here's one that has conquered the world. And Plutarch says that Diogenes said, would you move a little bit, you're blocking the sun. 
And that was his request. Move. You're standing between me and the sun. Oh, if we could have that attitude. Let nothing come between me and God. That I desire that so much. Let nothing stand between you and the righteousness of Christ. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And really, that's a sign of an appetite. That, that's a, uh, uh, an appetite is a sign of, of one's health. If, um, if you have a teenager in your home, probably they're eating you out of house and home to start with. But if you've had teenagers in your home and something happens, uh, uh, don't eat anything today or the next day or the third day, would you, would you just say, well, sometimes teenagers just don't like to eat? Oh, or it wouldn't have to be a teenager, any of your children like that. If, if they don't want to eat anything, not, not just uh, something, you know, not just broccoli or something, they don't want to eat anything, their favorite food's nothing, then there's something wrong. On the other hand, uh, among other uh, indicators, a good healthy appetite may be a sign that somebody's in pretty good health. Spiritually speaking. If, if we can just go long times and we experience no hunger and we're okay with that, that's an indication there's a real health problem there. It's that ravenous appetite that's an indicator that, uh, that one is making progress in his life for Christ. So, they shall be filled. I want to suggest to you, the promise is fulfilled now, here, partially. We're filled now, but ultimately in heaven. We shall be filled. So as I say, there's a, there's a spiritual logic. We're poor in spirit, mourning for sin, humble, gentle, meek, but going to the right source, desperately hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Remember the conversation Jesus had with a woman at the well in John 4? I love that story. She knew that Jew wasn't going to speak to her and she wasn't about to speak to him and she was very surprised when he said, um, would you give me a drink of your water? She said, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of me who am a Samaritan woman for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? Here's what Jesus said. If you knew the gift of God and who it was asking for you a drink, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. And that's the thing that the Lord is offering. The gift of God. The gift of salvation. The Bible closes, and we close our lesson tonight, with two verses from Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Is there someone tonight in our audience that stands in need of gospel obedience? To render obedience to the gospel, we would be so glad to help you and assist you if that's the case. Or if there's someone that would need to be restored to the Lord, if we could, if we could uh, be of assistance there as well. 
Let us know if in any way we may assist you as together we stand and sing.